Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited. Conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I'm Brent Birch, again with my co-host, Cason Short, and... We're coming up on just a few weeks from duck season when we record this show and coming off the last weekend was uh, the opener of the early spec season. So, Casey, I know y'all got out there. We talked a few times over the weekend and, and, uh, what, what'd you, what do you got to report out of, out of this past weekend? Uh, man, we had a good weekend. You know, I think, I think we saw exactly kind of what we know. We know that mid continent population is down 40 or 50%. And I think the birds we see in the field. You know, show that we're not we're not holding that hundred hundred twenty thousand birds like we like we were five ten years ago, but uh, we're holding a good number of birds. We had a, a good hunt, uh, kind of bad weather. You know, cloudy, foggy, rainy. Got a lot of rain in the state, so that's that's a bonus compared to the dust bowl. But uh, otherwise, man, we had a good start. How about you guys? Yeah, it was solid uh, for sure, and definitely not ideal conditions. I mean, you're talking warm, and of course, op- the opening day was no wind. Uh, but we we still did uh, really well, and didn't see just a you know just an outrageous amount of geese. We also didn't hear an outrageous amount of shooting, which was odd considering where we were hunting. We were east of Stuttgart, uh, just south of the Rice Research Center, which is a pretty heavily trafficked area for the speckle belly outfitters, and just didn't hear a lot of shooting. And then we went yesterday afternoon and uh, had much more wind and and had a had a banger of a hunt. It's a really good one. You know, there were only four of us, so it didn't take take too long and got in, got out, which was uh, the plan all along. So uh, not bad, not bad considering uh, not ideal conditions. Obviously, us spec hunters like a little sunshine, just like the duck hunters. But um, but yeah, so we've got a, a really, really cool guest. I know we say that every time, but I think each guest we get, uh, we're very fortunate to get to speak to them because of their... Uh, their take on this sport and and some of the like-minded ideas that they have. But uh, this is a longtime friend of Kaysen's that, uh, that he's known forever and, and, and speaks to quite often. And I'm excited to get to visit with him. So Kaysen, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, guys, we're joined by Pat Pitt today. Uh, I've known Pat, uh, I guess forever. I don't remember a time when I didn't know Pat. Uh, he was friends with my father and grandfather, uh, renowned taxidermist and duck hunter. Matter of fact, Pat has, Let's see. He is he has done birds for three generations of my family. So he, my two oldest, he's done their first bird. He's done some stuff for me and my dad. Uh, just all around great ambassador for the sport. Pat, welcome to the show. 
I'm glad to be with you. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sitka Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper, vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable, removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. Just a quick note before we get started, you will notice the audio with Pat Pitt is a little rough at the beginning, but hang in there because it does get better as the show goes on. Appreciate you bearing with it and enjoy the show. Uh, I know you guys did some spec hunting over the weekend. How did y'all do? Uh, it was good, short and sweet. Uh, we had five five of us in the pit, uh, including my eight-year-old grandson. And uh, he held his own and killed his three birds with his little 20-gauge. And, and we had them do it right, you know, feet down, neck moving, looking for a hole to sit in. So, um but if we even if we'd have killed one bird, as long as I was with my family, it would have been a good hunt. So, yeah, that uh, that all puts it in perspective. And you talking about your grandson there? He's got a a heck of a start in the waterfowl world. Uh, you brought him along on some banding projects a couple of years ago. So, man, he's he's killing birds and banding birds, and you're teaching him right. So, kudos for that. Well, he's learning from the ground up. I mean. <laughs> He's not learning off the internet. He's, you know, <laughs> hands on. Yeah, not on Instagram, huh? No. <laughs> well, so let, let's talk about kind of your start in Arkansas, because I think it's important for our listeners to to understand kind of how deep your water runs. When did you start hunting in Arkansas? Well, I started. Well, I started duck hunting in '63, and then moved to Arkansas in '71. Well, I actually moved to Memphis, finished my degree. Uh, I had a falling out with my major professor, but that's another story at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. But uh, he was an anti-hunter. That's all you need to know. But um, <laughs> I moved in 71, and when I crossed the bridge, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I never seen so many ducks in my life. And I mean, this is when they were basically wall-to-wall and uh, I met your granddaddy in 73, I believe, and met your daddy. 
and uh, hunted right next to the buyer's farm on the Walker farm. And uh, Charlie, your daddy, uh, let me take my boys on their first teal hunt in one of y'all's pits. And um took me 10 years to get through college, but I had trouble going to class during the winter. So that's why I didn't But, uh, uh, I just, you know, when I killed my first duck in 63, I thought, well, this is the greatest sport there ever was. Uh, yeah. You know, it just, uh, you know, I had a great bird dog. I ended up giving her to, away. Uh, got me a Labrador and learned how to duck them. Uh, it definitely had a profound impact on your life. So I think it's driven most everything you've done since then. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's driven me to become a student of of waterfowl. Uh, uh, you know, I've got stacks of books and magazine articles and whatnot that reach the, the sky. But, uh, you know, I was basically on the job training because I didn't have a mentor until I met Dr. Andrews, who was a good friend in Nashville and Hampton, uh, hunted with him at Fever Dam. And, I mean, it just kind of, you know, it's just like layers on a cake. It just kept adding. And uh, I like to think that I I learned from some of the best and I learned how to do it right. Uh, not that I never did do that. I, I've done it wrong a time or two. Getting, you know, I was a kid. But uh, trust me, it, it, it's something that you've got to back up and look at the big picture that's what i've been doing so i know you used to hunt there right next to to the buyer's farm but but you've got a you got a place now that a lot of people probably recognize the name um you know i've seen it and some of your activity under that name versus under you know your given name so why don't you talk about that that move and and what all you got you know how many acres type of hunting, all that stuff? Well, I started this little duck club in 1991 uh, up here north of Harrisburg, Arkansas, south of Jonesboro, uh, right next to Claypool. Uh, I started it just so my boys and I would have a place to hunt together. And they were, I think they were six and eight when I first started carrying them because I couldn't carry them on an invited hunt uh, because, you know, I didn't want to overstep my bounds if I asked them even. So we started the Langill Lounge and added friends and, and friends of friends. And we've got a, about a 20-member core group here that, you know, works together and hunts together and eats together and lives together. and if we kill a few ducks, it's a bonus. I mean, that's the way we look at it. But uh, my boys were raised here. Uh, they're going to take over this, you know, when I'm gone. And I hope it continues. But I've been leasing from the same farmer uh, since 91, and I've picked up some more pits. I, I don't know what I've got acreage-wise. If I added up everything, uh, it could be... 2,000 to 3,000 acres. I don't know how big some of these fields are. Um, 
I had never asked really. I just know it's a, a long walk across them. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm hunting out of some of the same pits that, that I had in 91. I've got dogs buried in front of these pits. So they'll have waterfowl landing on them during the year. I've got ashes of dogs scattered around the pit. So is my son. Um, got one buried in front of our picking shed. I mean, we're adding memories to memories, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it definitely does. And that's, that's kind of cool to have that longevity, especially on a, on a lease basis. My dad's in a similar situation. He's hunted the same farm on a lease, uh, since I was 13 and I'm 53 now. So, uh, that's a pretty pretty long track record of having a relationship with a farmer slash landowner and, and, and be able to maintain that over all this time is that's, that's pretty unique. Um, cause you, you see a lot of leases turn over and people do something that upsets the landowner and get some, get some run out. Um, you see some break up cause folks can't get along and, and all that. So it's, it's a testament to, to y'all being able to maintain this for such a long run uh under those kind of circumstances well our our leases are are on a handshake i mean uh we respect the farmer's land we treat it like it's ours um you know we don't cut up turn rows we don't we don't tear up fields we don't you know we don't do anything that we wouldn't do to our own front yard and they respect that and i know uh, one farmer's turned down more money than what we give him, uh, but that's loyalty uh, b- between us and him. Uh, we put a $40,000 addition on the camp house that we lease from him on a year-to-year basis, and this is basically his. I mean, we just enhanced it. And uh, um, I think that's why we've been able to do what we do for so long. Uh, one of my best friends, Chris Aikens, probably, I, I think he's the top dog trainer in the country for gun dogs. And, and, uh, heck, I judged the first dog he ever ran in a, in a trial. And we've been friends ever since. And he subleased land to me every year and takes care of me. And, and you've got to give back as much as you get. Uh, I mean, it's just like being married. Uh, it's not a one-way street. So, you know, I, it took me a while to learn all this. Don't get me wrong. I didn't wake up smart one day. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, you fall down enough or get slapped in the face enough, you know, you learn. So. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good message that uh, a lot of people could hear, especially ones that, that aren't in that longevity in the sport, like, like the three of us and, and have been around it so long and you, and you do learn, you learn some, learn some lessons and, and how to treat people and how to treat the resource and how to treat the ground and, and everything else, uh, to where you can have this, this longevity that we were talking about. So, um, that's a, that's a great message to pass along that uh, you do it right. It, you, you can reap rewards for a long, long time. 
Well, I'm I'm starting my sixty second year of waterfowl hunting, and uh, I keep I keep telling people, you know, I'm gonna take it up serious uh, one of these days. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's they don't make any more land, all right, and you can't buy friendship. You you can you can buy respect through your actions and. It's a privilege to step on somebody else's land to hunt. I mean, it's not something to be taken for granted. And uh, I certainly don't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just glad to be here. But, you know, the light of my life is, uh, you know, my sons and uh, my grandson, granddaughter, they've, they've in the pits with us a lot. And, uh, you know, just watching their eyes light up like mine still do. Uh, you know, means the world to me. So that's where I am, and hopefully, I'll be here a little while longer. Well, Pat, some of the stuff you're you're saying and your your mindset kind of reminds me of of, of telling this story, uh, or getting you to tell this story. You kind of have a I don't know if I'd call it a, a second lease on life or a second opportunity, but you you had a tremendous scare duck hunting one day, uh, and I think that's. Definitely had an impact on how you view things and how you appreciate every day you get. Can you talk to us about that story? Tell us about that day. Well, it it gave me a whole new outlook. Plus, you know, I've got two birthdays now: one July third, and the other one January sixteenth. And we celebrate both of them. Um, we had a hard freeze, and we and a thaw was coming. Matter of fact, a, a thaw. Cason's been in it. You probably have to, you know, the ice gets spongy. You can step up on it and it breaks through. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, getting meltwater on top. And these birds coming off clay peels, they know when there's a quarter inch of meltwater on the ice. And uh, I was out working on a pit. We had to put a sleeve in it in the dog box because the dog box was leaking. And, um, uh, we had a four wheeler and we don't run four wheelers in our field. Uh, I don't like the idea of going out there with headlights on and the engine roaring and mud slinging, waking the ducks up. I'd rather ease out there and let them ease out on their own. But, uh, anyway, one afternoon, January 16th, 2011, uh, we were working on getting this done and we had a four wheeler. And we carried his sleeve out there and we're putting it in the pit. And uh, Patrick took care of the four-wheeler out. Well, I took my dog. I had my dog and my gun, everything out there with him. And uh, once he cleared the field, you know, I, I killed the first greenhead that came in. And it when it hit the ice, it slid up underneath it. And the dog, you know, marked it, went out there, and he was running around looking for it. And I knew what had happened. So I broke ice out there to it and, you know, kicked the ice loose for him to grab a bird. And as soon as I turned around and started walking back, I was getting pain in my left arm and shoulder. And I was sweating like it was summertime by the time I got to the pit. And, you know, I've had enough biology to know what this was saying and uh i sat down and got on the phone and you know thank god for cell phone i called patrick and i said come get me 
And normally when I, <laughs> all fathers are probably like this. Normally when I tell one of my boys to do something, I get a argument or a conversation. And, but he knew from the tone of my voice that something was wrong. So he broke ice all the way out there with this four wheeler that didn't even belong to us. And, uh, picked me up, you know, I laid across the back of the four wheeler like a, a dead deer. Uh, my dog, I hollered for the dog to follow us and, and Ace was following us, but he turned around and went back to pit. And, uh, we got out of the field and we got in the truck and, uh, I kept telling Patrick, I said, make sure somebody gets a dog. And, uh, we were right at 20 miles from the hospital in Jonesboro. And I can remember laying back in the seat. And the pain was just, I don't even think there's a number for it. Uh, Patrick, going up Highway 1, I can remember him hitting the rumble strips, passing people on the right. And uh, he was running my truck right below where the computer would cut it off. And I think once you hit 100 miles an hour, the computer shut it down. Uh, so he was staying right there and ran two red lights and, and got me to the hospital. Uh, he jumped out of the truck at the emergency room entrance and ran inside. And this was on a Sunday. And on the way up there, he had called one of our members that was in Jonesboro doing some grocery shopping and said, get to the hospital and tell them we've got a cardiac case coming. And this... I'm sorry, I might get a little emotional here, but uh, there was a, a heart team, a pump team had just done a procedure on a woman in a nursing home that was there, and they stayed waiting for me to get there. Now, you hear about the stars lining up? Well, they did. So we get there, he goes in, they're coming out with a gurney. Well, I opened the truck door and stepped out, and I dropped a shotgun shell, and I was trying trying to pick it up. I remember stupid stuff I was doing. <laughs> and uh, they carry me into ER. And the things I remember are, you know, kind of happenstance. But they cut off a brand new pair of waders. Uh, I remember that. Wasn't happy over that. <laughs> uh, but that was, I crashed the first time. The first time I crashed, they brought me back, and I remember coming back to reality with this great weight on my chest where they were doing compressions. They broke three of my ribs and cracked my sternum doing it because I'm a big boy. And uh, but I, you know, the second time I crashed, what I remember is all of a sudden I went from intense pain to total serenity. And I was like floating on pink and blue cotton candy. And it's just like, I mean, it was surreal. And then they bring me back to the other side and the, uh, kept working on me. And the third time I crashed, went through the same thing on, I mean, if you don't believe in heaven, I can tell you it's there. Uh, people, kids saying, well, at least you weren't in a fire somewhere. I said, well, yeah, that's good too. But, uh, <laughs> They 
brought me back the third time and I had seized, I nearly bit my tongue in half. I kept wondering why they were, had an aspirator in my mouth, you know, with it sucking, but I had uh, clenched my teeth and had my tongue in there and I just about bit my tongue in half. Uh, they got me into the cast lab and I remember them running. Uh, they ran a stent, you know, up my groin to get the stent in place. And what had happened was my LAD, which is a lower descending something, uh, uh, aorta, call it the Widowmaker, all right? 93% of the people that have an occluded Widowmaker die. But they got me, Patrick got me there within the golden hour. They had me in the cath lab and got the stent in place and, you know, carried me into IC, uh, cardiac care unit, the CCU. And in the meantime, word had gotten out that this was happening. And, of course, all this was hearsay, but they said the waiting room was all camouflaged. And uh, Larry Grisham is a good friend of mine, and he headed the Arkansas Duck Stamp Program, uh, hunted Sisters Reservoir and all that, and he was pretty well-to-do in Jonesboro, and he called the head of uh, the hospital and said, you know, my good friend, Pat Pitt, has had a heart attack. Get down there and make sure he's okay. Well, <laughs> doctor said, well, Dr. White is there. He's taking care of him. Larry said, you don't understand what I said. Get back down there and make sure my friend is okay because Larry's bank held the lease on the new NEA hospital, like $70 gazillion loan right. to build that thing. And uh, I remember the my charge nurse in CCU was a sweet little blonde girl, Jennifer Blaney. I'll never forget her. She kept coming in and she says, who are you? And I said, I'm just a duck hunter that heart broke. And she said, no. She said, because the head of the hospital and the head of the department and all of them were in the CCU unit, you know, checking on me. But uh, I didn't know I had that many friends. I've always kidded Gail that, you know, she's going to have to hire pallbearers. Uh, but uh, it was something I'll never forget. Um, I'm actually shaking right now thinking about it. Uh, yeah, well, I was the third guy to come in that winter, duck hunter, deer hunter, whatever, and I was the only one to survive it. Uh, but everything's going good. I got a checkup Monday before spec season opened. Blood pressure 120 over 70. Um, liver tox, everything looking good. And uh, I had to have a heart ablation because I'd gone into Hayfield back during the summer. But you know, everything's clear. Uh, I'm just glad to be here. But that, all that tells you one thing 
you better appreciate every sunrise you have uh, because you don't know when the last one's going to be. Nash Buckingham once said, uh, isn't it great that God doesn't tell you when your last day of hunting is going to be? So you treat it like, yeah, and that's, I paraphrased it, but, uh, you know, you you better appreciate things for what they are, not uh, what you want them to be. Because, you know, life's short and, uh, you know, it's just, it's given me the opportunity. I never would have known my grandchildren. Okay? I never would have gotten to see them, you know, shoot their first duck, shoot their first goose. You know, Reed had a hell of a weekend. He killed a limited specs and, and yesterday he killed a deer. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's something that, uh, that a lot of people take for granted, and you better not. And, you know, like I say, don't ever go to bed mad with your wife or anything because you may not wake up the next morning. So uh, it just gives you a whole new perspective, and you can't tell somebody that uh, and then say, well, just like I tell them, like I've seen heaven, and I know I have. I've seen it three times. And... You know, people say, well, you're being melodramatic. Well, I maybe maybe I am, but whether you want to believe me or not, one of these days, you're going to see it for yourself. But it'd be too late then to come back and say, yeah, you're right. But still, uh, you know, it's just waterfowl hunting to me is a gift. I mean, it, it, I don't care how much money you got or whatever. Uh, when it's your time to go, you're gone. And then if you're you got more money than David Crockett, and you're laying there holding your breath forever and throwing dirt in your face. It ain't going to do you no good. So just treat it, you know, treat it like a gift. Uh, you know, you don't abuse a gift that somebody gives you. I certainly don't. Well, I think it's that perspective that really paints a picture for for some of the, the beliefs that you – how you feel, you know, and I think we all, the three of us certainly view it all as a gift. And I appreciate you telling us that story. I think it tells all our audience, you know, a, a lot more about you, but um, we're not done there either. I mean, you, you've hunted. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. It was a long winded, but no. I <laughs> uh, you know, as good as friends as we are, that's the first time we've ever talked about it. Uh, word did travel fast that day. I think I knew about it that afternoon. Uh, it, it got to our part of Arkansas pretty quick. So um, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing in the duck hunting world. You you never know really how many friends you have or how big a reach you've had until something like that. And it's it's apparent that uh, you've touched a lot of people in the world. But Well, we just lost Craig. We just lost Craig Crawford. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This summer, uh, you know, I have to look at the look at the people he touched. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, no, it's just like I say. You know, your days are numbered. Make them count. Yeah. Um. Well, tell us a little more. I know you've hunted all over the world. Uh, what are some of the? I can't even begin to to figure what it would be. But what are some of the most interesting places you've hunted, or what's what are some of the most interesting species of ducks that you've harvested? What? That's a long list, but <laughs> I really like hunting Iceland. I've got a good friend up there. 
that comes down and hunts with me every year. And, you know, Iceland is, is one of the cleanest countries in the world, 98% renewable resources. Uh, you don't see litter thrown out on the road. Same as New Zealand. New Zealand's the same way. It's like hunting in church. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely serene and beautiful. If you'll sit back and look at something other than just the birds you're shooting, okay? So, uh, uh, you know, of course, Argentina's, uh, you know, it's like Wild West down there. Uruguay is the same way. The Netherlands is hunted there. Of course, Netherlands is one of the most liberal countries in the world. Uh, I actually had a run-in with a, with a native over there about, standing there with a pile of geese around us, but people may not want to hear that. But anyhow, it's, uh, uh, I love to travel. I love to see new sights and new sounds. And, and, uh, I don't know, no matter where I go, the food is better down here in the South than it is anywhere else. But, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a key uh, component. Yeah. Yeah. I like hunting Alaska. Uh, you know, I've I've collected, you know, they closed a bunch of stuff up there. You know, I shot amber geese and stellar's eiders and kings and whatnot. And and uh, back before, a lot of people knew what they were. Uh, and Dr. Andrews, I saw the first amber goose I'd ever seen. Uh, and, you know, when he was teaching me taxidermy, and I, I got to have one. So uh, I went up there in 79 and collected them. And. I think they closed them in 83, but um, I actually drew a tag for one two years ago because my oldest son, Patrick, wanted to put in for it. And I said, well, I'll put in two. Well, I got drawn. He didn't, you know, like I needed another one. But still, uh, uh, amper geese, uh, they're, I think, the epitome of, one of, of the geese goose numbers in the country. Uh but they're non-migratory. I mean, it's hard to beat a white front, uh, of course. I'd rather hunt them probably than any of the geese. But, uh, and Stellar's Eiders, they're closed. They'll probably never open them back up. And I collected a lot of those. Iceland, uh, Barnacle Goose uh, was a great trophy to shoot. Uh, there's so many in South America uh, to list that I've shot and when I first started hunting down there, we could bring them back too. So I've got all them mounted, uh, uh, along with, you know, everything that New Zealand had to offer. And, uh, I finished the United States. The internet's a, is a two headed snake or a double edged sword. It, it gets people into the raw, raw state of mind instead of the, uh, respectful state of mind, I think, because it's hunt 41 or whatever. It's actually 42 species, and it's actually 62 if you add all the uh, subspecies, and I think I'm at 58. But oh, wow. uh, anyway, it's, it's you know, it's there again, if, you, if you're standing in the, in the middle of a marsh, a pristine marsh, and, and South America and in, in Argentina, and you're holding a, a silver teal or a chilo widgeon, or you know something that that you never see in the states. You know, it, it's it's got to be something to appreciate. Uh, we see too many 
grip and grin, hero shot pile pictures uh, that don't have a story to it. Uh, it's almost, you know, competitive. I mean, you see 30 guys standing out in front of panel blinds, everybody holding uh, a handful of geese that no telling how many people shot. Uh, you know, it doesn't do anything for me. I see one little boy standing there with a, a immature green wing teal or a, a drake wood duck or a, or a goose or whatnot with a big smile on his face. That does more to me. Than, than seeing all these hero shots. Uh, and, you know, people need to appreciate that. It's not it's not numbers, it's certainly not numbers. Uh, you know, when I started, the limit was three mallards. I mean, excuse me, three ducks, only one mallard. Uh, you couldn't shoot canvasbacks. Um, it, was, it was one mallard or one black duck. And, you know, most of the hunters this day and time that are the new generation robo cowboys, as I call them, they've never known a season that wasn't a liberal season. And, you know, if that'll ever change, I doubt. I mean, because it's all about the dollar and the ducks are a pawn in all this. You know, an outfitter's got 30 guys out there hunting. You know, he's making a pretty good living. Uh, and all 30 of them want to shoot, whether it's one bird or a hundred that comes in. So, uh, but that's not hunting. I mean, that's shooting. There's a difference. You can do the same thing at a gun club, shooting clay targets. Uh, but you go out, you know, I love some of the hunts where it's just me and the dog. Uh, gives me a chance to clear my mind. And of course, my grandkids, you know, God love them. Uh, they can ask some questions. I mean, I asked my youngest son, Stephen, uh, he went to Kansas turkey hunting. I said, well, did Reed keep you entertained? He, he said, yeah, he asked a lot of questions. I said, well, how many questions did he ask? And he said, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we did the same thing when we were kids. I mean, heck, we were just full of questions. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I I don't have anything bad to say about it. Sometimes, of course, I'm hard of hearing. Uh, sometimes I have to ask it two or three times. But uh, you know, if if you teach, if, if they're learning right, it's just like your boys, Jason. I mean, uh, they've been around more adult, older duck hunters, just like my boys have, than they've been around you know, little kids, you know, when it comes to the outdoors, you know, whether they're hunting or fishing or, or whatever. So, uh, uh, it's something that, that people need to, to realize that the next generation, uh, is going to make a break waterfowl hunt. Uh, when we got checked by a game warden, uh, Saturday, same one that checked us last year. <laughs> when he realized who we were coming out, you know, it was warm and cordial. You know, of course, everybody else would be nervous as, you know, not knowing what to do. You know, and I, you know, said hello. And I said, let me introduce you to my son, Reed, and our grandson, Reed. And he was standing there with three specks he was dragging out of the field on a strap. <laughs> and, uh, but, 
you know, they shook hands and, and, uh, Mary Claire, my granddaughter, he was going to dress up as Halloween, Halloween costume. Patrick said, uh, tell Mr. Jeff what you're going to be Halloween. She said, I'm going to be a game warden. And, uh, she's got an Arkansas game and fish hat she was going to wear. And, uh, so we took her picture with, with, uh, Jeff and, and, you know, it, it just, and I, I thanked him for interacting with our, with our kids. Yeah. And he said more than once that they're the future generation uh, of, of, of hunting. And it's changing with the, with the, the liberal and the woke and, you know, all this stuff you see and hear and uh, of trying to shove down kids' throats. Uh, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle in a lot of places. So, you know, you better get a hold on this. I mean, they're already wanting to shut down this and shut down that. And, uh, I'm I'm one of the biggest proponents of of the bird watchers and the people that are going on to national wildlife refuges or even state refuges. They need to purchase a federal duck stamp before they set foot on ground that our money's paying for. So, you know, I, I get on my soapbox sometimes. Don't necessarily mean to mean to, but you know, just like somebody come come walking up and say, "Well, how many robo ducks do you run in your spread?" I don't run a damn one out there. <laughs> I don't want to see them. I said I told my boys ninety nine when they first got up here, and we saw them. I said, "You're saying that the end of normal normal decoy duck hunting." Yeah. So, you know, but most, I mean, Casey, you know good and well that. Once robo ducks came out, you could take a field that you'd starve to death in if you hunted every day of the season and stick a robo duck out there and you'd kill them, you know, early on, back when. But, uh, you know, that rapidly went by the wayside. So, you know, but a lot of people, it's just like taking a pacifier away from a one year old if you don't let them have a robo duck. So, and face paint and a flat brimmed hat and a barrel sticker and, you know, the list goes on and on. But uh, so you're saying you know, you're just, you're saying these pictures of these forty, fifty man gun hunts are not a good look. <laughs> no, I mean it looks looks like a, a flash mob or something. I mean it's it's not it it's not that isn't waterfowl hunting. It's no. shooting, plain and simple. Yeah. It's just how, how fast can I pull the trigger? And it, it it's just well, like I say, is <laughs> and how fast can we get that picture on social media? Yeah, cause we want to beat the guys down the street. Uh, but it a lot of people got the wrong idea about it, and you know they can hate me for saying it, but I don't care. Uh, it's the truth. And if the truth hurts, back up and take a look at what you're doing right? and do something about it. No, you, you made an excellent point, Pat. I mean, we, as hunters, shooters, whatever, you know, we've got the deck stacked against us in, in modern society. And then we go out and we do these things and we put this image out there that just 
gives them ammo to attack us. And it's, we should be smarter than that. We're just hurting ourselves. I mean, you know, ideally we're all out there hunting to, to put food on the table and enjoy, you know, the table fare. Well, who wants to eat something that's been shot by 50 guys? I mean, it just it defeats the purpose. Well, of course. And, and, you know, I keep saying to younger generation, people get, people get mad saying, well, you old timers, you know, you had it, this, you had that. And now we've got warmer clothes and better boots and better guns and, aftermarket choke tubes and kryptonite loaded ammo that'll kill one at 90 yards. <laughs> and it's, it, you know, they take it for granted, but you, you can't, you can't look at this sport the way a lot of people are doing and continue to do it because the antis, you know, they're racking up. They got big money behind it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we got, you know, we, a lot of people, are, a lot of us are, you know, poor Joe's church mouse, but I mean, they've got, they've got money and they've got media behind them. And you start posting up these pictures of, of uh, a duck, it's all the feathers are blown out of it in the air uh, or, you know, a big pile of ducks that, you know, people are just, Picking a duck bill down a shotgun barrel. I want to go find who does that and slap them. I mean, that's the most disrespectful thing I think you can do. Uh, there's a lot of disrespectful things, but that right there just it just it just blows me away to to think that people because ducks are a pawn now for the dollar. I mean, ducks aren't the primary subject of the matter. The dollar bill is a primary subject of the matter, and the ducks are just a pawn. That's why we're still in a liberal season, so they can get their duck stamps sold and all that. And, and Casey, you know as well as I do, the write-in campaign we had when Arkansas was going to open duck season on Saturday after Thanksgiving, that would have been the biggest mistake they could have ever made, I think. Uh, so, you know, now we've got it the Saturday before Thanksgiving, just like it's basically supposed to be. We, and they gave us one more day at Christmas, so the wives will be happy. Uh, and it's 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 just something that, that we got to stay on top of. And uh, if we don't, no telling what's going to happen. I still wish Youth Weekend was two days in February instead of splitting it, because a lot of clubs don't want people hunting that one Saturday during the split to, to rest their birds. Uh, I can see that, but yeah. still, you know, kids at home that could go hunting taint. Uh, fathers or uncles that take a kid hunting and, and shoot their birds for them out there. But <laughs> don't tell me that doesn't happen. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, there's a lot of ways to circumvent the law. I mean, just like the point system. Good Lord, what a farcical thing they came up oh. with with that. It <laughs> made everybody illegal. I mean, it made Dave Hall, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, that did the Poachers to Preachers uh, series that, that I was actually a part of. 
uh, he told me that he never checked a hunter that didn't have the high point bird as the last one they killed. <laughs> never checked one that shot a canvas back and quit. Uh, but it's, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to get around it. But, you know, when a man walks up and catches you with your pants down, you got to, it's not a slap on the wrist anymore. Uh, you know, you can, you can lose a lot of, a lot of your privilege, you know, and if, and if your minor kid is with you and he does something wrong, you get the points because, you know, he, he doesn't have a license. So, you know, you'll get the points against you. And I don't want to, you go a year or three years without being able to, to waterfowl hunt. And now that all the states are in the, the reciprocal agreement, uh, your dogs are going to get old. You can't go out there and work your dog or blow a duck call. You know, you're out until your probation is over. Uh, so that gets a lot of people's attention. So the, the Wildlife Violators Compact, I mean, you know, Arkansas, I think every state in the union is in it now. I believe Connecticut are, are one of those little states that was liberal. The last one to do it, but uh, uh, yeah, you can't. And I don't think you're supposed to go out of the country either. So, yeah, they can get you pretty good. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that Clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids' ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah, the Yeti Go box is, is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must-have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas, and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you, you've obviously been at this a long time, and we we talk a lot about what's going wrong in the sport. What's, what's something that's going right, uh, you know, in your eyes? Or is there anything going right? Well, I tell you, the, the scale is tipped way toward the wrong. Uh, I'd have to sit there and ponder as to what's going right. Uh, yeah. Some of these youth programs, some of the youth programs they have, it's just like when we were banding ducks uh, on the buyer's farm. I mean, gosh, how many kids were involved in that? Uh, yeah, we had a bunch. You know, I've got a picture. I've got a picture here in the duck camp. I'm sitting there looking at right now. With 
Reed was four years old, I guess, and he's he's bear hugging a green head with a band on it uh, that Paul had just put on there. And, uh, I mean, he was as happy as a kid at Christmas. I mean, the, the, getting youth involved, I don't care if it's, you know, a, a, a early program or, or a youth hunt or anything like that, that's going right. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That I, I, I keep saying it. They're they're the future of this sport. Uh, you know what's going wrong? Golly, uh, the list goes on and on with that. But uh, uh, I like I like some of these. Uh, some of the DU chapters have youth days. Uh, some of the Delta chapters have youth days, and. You know, we've got to get these kids with their face out of a, a video game and get them outdoors so they'll know that meat doesn't come from Walmart. So it's just, it's it's an uphill battle. I mean, I, I know Kaysen's seen it. I've seen it. Uh, you know, and you can sit there and fiddle while Rome burns, but, you know, you better get up off your ass and do something or you know, we're going to see some things stop that we don't want. So, uh, you know, but I, I don't think, I think the number of bad things versus the number of good things, probably a hundred to one. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a sad state of affairs. Uh, but I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, and it's on so many different levels too, um, that, you try to find those bright lights and they're, they're, they're hard. They're hard to come up with, um, outside your own little circle of enjoyment or circle of, you know, trying to teach and do things the right way. But, but then you see some of the other stuff going on you're like, man, we, we could not, you know, we're, we're chasing the same animal and we could not be more farther apart in that pursuit. Um, and, and that, that, that kind of stinks. Well, it's like a dog chasing its tail. You're never going to catch it. Uh, and, you know, to to think that it's going to be all well and good and, you know, everybody's going to make nice, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. I mean, we, uh, you know, we see it all the time. And, you know, like I say, if people, I have kids and parents of kids that don't hunt, They'll say, can you take my boy hunting? Well, sure, I can do it. Uh, you know, the only two rules I got is he minds me, and if he does something wrong, I can kick his ass. So, you know, if they agree to that, then we're, 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 we're copacetic. Well, Pat, I'm going to circle back a little bit. We, we talked about white fronts there, and I know I've kind of told this story, but I, I tell it from someone else's perspective, because I wasn't there. Talk about kind of the evolution of the white front. I, I know you remember the first white fronts really that you ever saw in the state of Arkansas, but uh, I know you and I both are, are passionate about those. So talk about that for us, if you would. Well, I mean, they were, they were an, an anomaly, just like snow geese. When I first started hunting snow geese in Arkansas, the limit was five. Okay. That just give you as to how long ago, how archaic I am, uh, we would see white fronts flying to Louisiana. Uh, every now and then we'd kill one, which would be just a total fluke. Uh, 
but they started building, I guess, in the toward the late 80s, early 90s up here. That may be a year or two off, but uh, we started seeing more and more each year. And, you know, they decoyed like a, a sailor going to a bar on leave. I mean, they, <laughs> everybody was a hero when it came to hunting whitefront. Uh, it was... Uh, and they kept building and they kept building and they kept building. Now they're getting in flocks that rival snow geese size flocks. Uh, and I think they're earning some bad habits from them, but they're getting pressured so much. I think when the duck numbers dropped coming to Arkansas, like they used to, uh, the, the interest in the participation of white front hunters went up exponentially. Uh, you, you know, like I say, it doesn't take a fifteen hundred decoy spread to decoy white fronts. Uh, it's almost as much about calling it as it is, you know, to the decoy spread. And uh, you know, we're getting more and more up here, and and uh, Louisiana's getting less and less, and Missouri's picking up. Gosh, I think Missouri's got a lot of our ducks up there that stay up there. You know, ducks have learned they've. Uh, They've adapted uh, to to pressure, and it's just like, why would you drive by 20 McDonald's to get a hamburger when you could have stopped at the first one? And that may be in southern Illinois or, or uh, Missouri or wherever on the Mississippi Flyway. And they've learned as long as they can get the water and they can dry feed, if snow doesn't cover it up, they're going to stay there. So... But the white fronts have been, they've been a boom, you know, to the to the waterfowl hunting industry. I mean, just look at, you know, dive bomb industries has, has made a fortune on selling silhouette. Uh, when I first started goose hunting, we had six Canada goose silhouettes back in 1963. And, you know, all of a sudden they disappeared when all the full bodies came out. And uh, uh, now they're getting back in vogue. Uh, you know, not only for white fronts, but they are for Canada's and snows and everything else. But, you know, people's mindset has evolved to make things more accessible. Uh, but there again, it's all about, you know, dollars for ducks or geese, you know, whichever way you want to put it. But uh, I think Friday, yeah, when I was out scouting around there, one piece of property down below us, and I I saw more white-fronted geese on the ground. And, heck, it was a dozen fields just end to end to end than I've ever seen in Arkansas. I mean, I can't even imagine the numbers. I mean, you drive by, and, and they'd be as far out in the field and as thick as this field as they were the next one. And I don't have I don't have an idea how many. I can't even guess. But... That was because we didn't have any water, and they were all locked in on the reservoirs, and they were flying out to dry feed. That's what mm-hmm. they're doing. It's going to change now that we've had all this rain, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably for their benefit instead of ours because it's going to spread them out. Uh, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket because we can all remember about the the HPAI outbreak that we had up here on the prairie last year oh, yeah. uh, that hit snow 
hard. I mean, God, we picked up hundreds, hundreds of them. Uh, and I don't want to see that, you know, in a white group, a white front flock. Luckily, we didn't find many dead white fronts last year. But, yeah, uh, we, we, we didn't you either. Know, yeah, all it takes, though, is, is just one family group or little flock that, that has that, that, that can pass it on. And next thing you know, you got another big dial. So, uh, you know, that's just something that, that people don't think about. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely ag- agree with you. The downturn in duck hunting has caused a significant uptick in the white front hunting because people would, struggle maybe that morning to kill ducks and they're like well let's do something and so they you know they pay their 250 bucks and go getting a getting a blind of course a-frames also have made it attractive because people don't most people don't like to hunt out of layouts um that's the a-frame and the ability to to hide those things makes it where people feel like they're almost on a dove hunt sitting on a stool um just the ease all that has made it you know, it's made the people come out of the woodwork to to throw some money at a hunt. And it's made the outfitters definitely. I mean, I know outfitters that have left the duck game altogether just to chase buckbellies. Mm, I I don't doubt it. I mean, you. But but look look at the other side of the coin. What that's doing. You know, people go out and they they shoot a limit of ducks in the morning, and they don't want to sit around the lodge because they paid their money. They want to go goose hunt. Well, they're out there set up in a, a dry field or, or whatever, right next to the water that they hunted that morning. And they're still buying it away. Well, guess what? Yeah. The ducks don't know that they're not being shot at. I mean, they're getting more jumpy and, and more pressured. Uh, so, I mean, you know, all this gunfire is, is, is probably, keeping everything on the edge. I can remember when when we weren't hunting with robo ducks, we worked 35 and 40 bunches of mallards out in the rice fields. Uh, you don't see that. At least we don't anymore. You know, it's the eight or 10. But when Arkansas uh, banned robo ducks for the two years, uh, by halfway through, by the first split of the first year they had them banned, we were back to working the big bunches of mallards in the in the fields so it's had an impact something one one biologist and i think it was with the state of arkansas you know when a, when the robo ducks hit the scene and they were talking about banning them and all that they estimated that 40 percent of the super hens that came to arkansas had gotten killed and casey knows what i'm talking about the super hens were the ones that were imprinted on the buyer's farm on the walker farm on on clay pools or wherever that came down each year and brought their brood with them. Okay. They ran the gauntlet from Canada down to Arkansas and the young of the year imprinted down here also. Well, if, you know, if you do a three Sigma unit bell curve and, and exponentially numbers, you're looking at huge numbers of ducks that were imprinted on the prairie. But when 40% of those hens got killed because they were so susceptible to the robo ducks i mean it's just like hanging up a for hanging up a sale sign at a uh clothing store those women were were going to it like being sucked by a magnet 
and 40% of them were killed. That's a significant number. And that's their numbers, not ours. I mean, that's by somebody that's sitting behind a desk, you know, being a beam counter. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize what it's done. It's also made them harder to decoy. I can promise you that. Oh, for sure. For sure. I I don't even consider taking one. Having in well over 10 years, maybe even longer. Um, but yeah, we, we tried to get uh, Dr. Heitmeyer on the show. I've I've you know spent a lot of time visiting with him. I've even written an article on the super hen theory of his. And once his schedule clears up a little bit, we're going to get him on here to talk about that susceptibility that hens have to those things and and some of the other stuff that he's got some some hot takes on. But uh, let's let's shift gears just a little bit because you you've referenced you know the field hunting and and which is a it's getting to be every season that goes by, it seems to be field hunting in Arkansas is getting a little tougher every year, whether it's how early we harvest rice, whether it's combine efficiency, whether it's turn everything into zero grades. Uh, why don't you talk about, you know, I, from what I gather, y'all are primarily or maybe all field hunting. What's What are you doing? What are your keys to success field hunting wise that that is allowing the Langy Lounge to to have such a successful field hunting when when a lot of people are are really struggling in that regard well a lot of it's location of course and you know where sure. the x is and a lot of it is loyalty with the farmers that are providing us a place to hunt because Casey knows this year as dry as it was they were running land planes and plows right behind the combines in so many places. I don't know how many fields percentage-wise are already turned over up here because they want to get a jump start on next spring. And and farmers got to make a living. I mean, it isn't a hobby for them to provide a place for them to duck hunt. They used to take the lease money and hand it to their wives and say, go Christmas shopping. You know, now they're buying diesel fuel and and everything else with it because prices have gone up so much and equipment has gotten so much more efficient. Uh, I know stripper headers uh, don't leave near as much waste grain as the conventional headers. Uh, Mississippi State did a study in one of our fields uh, where they put screens out over several square feet to determine how much waste grain was left versus how much waste grain was eaten. And, you know, there have been a lot of studies on it. and uh what what we do is we don't hunt past 12 o'clock okay i don't even want to hunt past 10 o'clock but the i know a lot of ducks have gotten smarter and you know between 11 o'clock and one o'clock they're hitting fields that they've sat in the woods or on the reservoir all day long waiting but you we try not to pressure them. I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people, they go out and they kill their matter limit and they quit. They come in. You know, nowadays we got people staying out there wanting to kill a shoveler to finish their limit out. And, uh, you know, some people I hear these asinine quotes, well, shoveler's a new mallard. Well, that's because you can kill them and you can't kill a mallard. But, uh, <laughs> the... It, it, that all boils down to the pressure syndrome, as I call it. But 
you know, we don't hunt past 12 o'clock. I mean, we don't, we don't jam pits with eight and 10 hunters. I mean, four or five generally is mo every now and then we'll have six. Uh, and then a lot of it just depends on, you know, course, opening weekend. It's like the circus coming to town, but, um, you know, we we don't pressure those birds any more than we have to, and you know we don't we don't set up goose spreads during during duck season. Uh, I'm dead set against it, and a lot of a lot of farms that are around us do. Uh, but we've got I want to say four or five farmers right within sight of my clubhouse that don't allow afternoon hunting. And it makes a difference. Uh, I can go out here in the evening and watch ducks come into fields. And, and uh, of course, a lot of birds show up down here already nocturnal. And, you know, people talk about them feeding on the full moon. Hell, it can be pouring down the rain, and they're still out here going into fields in the dark. So uh, uh, a lot of the old theories don't hold that much water, I don't think. But uh, you just... You know, you you just gotta give those ducks some place where they can breathe. Uh, I can remember the you know back in the seventies, you know the Byers farm, it was down there a parking lot up and down uh, the highway. People stopping and looking at all the ducks resting out there because Mr. Byers had those rest ponds right there on well on the south side of the road primarily. He had an old tower there at one time, but. Uh, you know, it was nice to be able to start and see birds like that. But uh, now we've had several problems here with people. We've got a, a rest field right behind our camp house. We've had people bow up and stop and shoot off the road. A lot of them wish they hadn't because, you know, I've got game warrants on speed dial and sheriffs too. So, uh, yeah. but, you know, it, it's funny how. Uh, you know, people want to get their share, and they don't. They don't really care about how they do it. It's not that that, you know, they shoot in a bunch of ducks and run out there and grab two or two or three if we can't get to them in time. But look how many they've crippled, and that's that's the thing with all these uh, big panel blinds laid end to end, like train tracks shooting into flocks of specks. Well, look how many they kill. Yeah, but look how many they cripple. I'll pick up. 40, 50 to 100 dead and crippled specks trying to make it back to some of our reservoirs every year. Uh, and I know dang good and well, you know, they've had a Texas heart shot or, you know, their gut's been shot out and they just, you know, couldn't make it back to the reservoir. Uh, but, you know, it's not, the, it's not the ones you kill, it's the ones you don't kill. As a taxidermist, I don't know how many, I don't know what the percentage is of birds that I mount each year that have had wings broken, legs broken, that have fused back together, and some of them in odd angles and whatnot, you know, in, inflicted shot. I'll find pellets in their breast, and, you know, the breast muscle, if, if a pellet goes in the breast and doesn't penetrate the body cavity, the breast muscle will eventually put that push that pellet out to where it's right under the skin, and it becomes encapsulated. You know, there, but that's from shooting birds too far away that you can't, you know, you can't kill. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, as long as they're coming to you, they ain't getting no further away. Uh, 
And, you know, people are talking about what choke should I shoot and what choke would work best and what size shot. You get them inside 30 yards, you can kill them with skeet loads and improve cylinders, cylinder choke tubes. It, uh, people have forgotten how to work ducks. Uh, they just, they buy into the aftermarket super duper shot and chokes and all that. And five people stand up and shoot into a flock of ducks that start flaring off their robo ducks at 70 yards. And they'll drop one or two sometimes, but it's the number of ducks that have had shot inflicted to them. And even if half of them die, that's significant. Uh, but you don't, you don't realize the ramifications of all this uh, as, as to what's happening. Plus you've educated those birds. Uh, you know, people got a, they get a tornado of, of specs working and they get four or five right down in the decoys. I don't care if you're hunting with some of the best shots in the world, the average group of hunters wouldn't be able to kill all four or five of them. You know, to begin with, three of them would all shoot at the same bird, even if their gun barrel was across somebody else's. Uh, but it's, uh, everybody gets in a hurry. You know, they want to be, like you said, they want to be the first one to get their limit on Facebook. Uh, so, We've taken down our line gill page just because of that. Uh, we get too much grief uh, from antis and whatnot. So, you know, a lot of them don't know we're here anymore. Yeah. Pat, you, you mentioned something else in the story earlier. You said that you guys don't use four-wheelers, and you mentioned the headlights. That, that's something that we do the same. But uh, tell me or tell the audience why it is that you, you don't want to use headlights in the morning, why you don't want to use four-wheelers like that? Well, to begin with, I don't even like somebody wearing a, uh, a headlight, you know, on their head. That was the first thing they do is they turn around and look at me and ask a question, and I can't <laughs> see for five minutes. Uh, but you're changing the way the world comes alive by – roaring out there with a with a side by side and you know headlights on and whatnot and and the ducks learn i mean they don't have a brain the size of a pecan but that happens enough to them they're gonna go find greener pasture and and i know we get fields that geese spend a night in and, and we walk to the pit and the birds may roll over but they're gonna be in that field when it comes shooting time and likely as not, when somebody else starts shooting around them, they'll roll over the top of us and get a rude awakening. But, uh, you know, it just, I just think the less commotion you can do in the field, it's just like somebody running through your bedroom, you know, beating a drum. Uh, it's a rude awakening. And most it's funny. Now, like I say, I'm 76 years old, and I will walk to a pit. Uh, there's only one pit out here that when it's in beans, they make me, I had to spend money to buy a can-am so they, my boys could drive me out in this one particular field because it's a death march and when it's in beans. But everything else, I'm going to walk to it. And I tell people, if I can walk to a pit, you can. I said, you know, we either walk down a levee or we wade the field going out there to it. If it takes you 
wake up 15 minutes early. I don't care what you do. Just, you know, understand it, that you've got a little little walk ahead of you. But it's it, it's not going to kill you. If, you. if you're not in good shape, just walk slow. Uh, you know, rice fields, are, they're cut all to pieces with combine and bean buggies. They're easy to walk walk in, I think. I'd rather walk in the field a lot of times and walk down the levee because uh, I fall off of one every now and then. But it's, uh, and, and it's funny that somebody will have a pit 100 yards off the road. Okay, let's just look at this scenario. They'll have a pit 100 yards off a turn road or a farm road, and they'll want to ride a four-wheeler or a side-by-side a hundred yards out there, and then they turn around and drive it fifty yards away from it and park it. <laughs> well, well, those you've seen it. Well, those ducks, those ducks don't know what that is, but they know it wasn't out there yesterday. Okay, and the real smart ones will <laughs> will put it fifty yards downwind from the pit <laughs> to make matters even worse. Yeah, but. Uh, a lot of it, I know, is convenience. I mean, we've hunted guys that I hunted with a guy that had polio that could not walk. Period. He had polio when he was a kid, and I mean, he was from the waist down, he was useless. And I mean, we carried him out there in a four wheeler or side to side, and three of us picked him up and set him down in the pit, feet first. You know, and it, you know, there's there's exceptions to everything. But if if you're trying to save yourself a hundred or two hundred yard walk or a quarter mile walk, get up and leave a little early. Your doctors appreciate it because you're getting a good cardio. So, uh, but it's you know a lot of it isn't necessary. A lot of it's out of convenience uh, for people that you know. Let's face it, they're lazy. Uh, well, we're the we're the same way when it comes to lights. Uh... And Saturday morning, we're we're setting up decoys, and I could almost read the newspaper. It was, you know, just that time of morning. And our our neighbors over there, they got so many light bars on. When they would point in our direction, I couldn't see to do anything. Like, man, I don't know how they think that's good or how they think they need it, but it's uh, kind of like flat billed hats, I guess. But I, I, something yeah. else I want to talk to you about that you guys have a a rule about killing hens there at the Lane Loud. Tell everybody about that. Hen mallards and hen pintails cost you $10. I don't care if you thought it was a gadwall or you were shooting at a drake and it got killed. It's going to cost you $10. If I happen to be in a pit with you and see you doing it on purpose, it's going to cost you $10. You're going to get an ass chewing and go along with it. All right? And, uh, you know, we use that money for, you know, buy food and whatnot, but, but, I've got pictures of our our picking shot, uh, picking shed wall out there, and there may be forty, fifty green heads and two hens, one hen, no hens. And I pride myself and my guys in in being picking and choosing. Now, early light, and especially you hunting in the timber too, it's hard to tell. But uh, if you've got duck numbers, I mean, you can wait a few minutes. It's not going to kill you. But, you know, pintails were within 30,000 of being on the threshold of having the season closed this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
there's no excuse, especially late in the season. We had more pintails down here than God has green apples uh, late season. You know, from the first week of January to the end of the season, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion. You're going to kill a great pintail. And there's no excuse for killing a hen, especially in in blue sky like we had a lot of, which I enjoy. But uh, uh, there's not a single hunter that will listen to this podcast that will buy a duck stamp that will buy a hunting license, that owns a shotgun, that buys a case of shells, that needs that hen mallard or that hen pintail to subsist on. They don't need it. They're not hunting for subsistence. Well, waterfowl hunting is the most expensive small-game sport there is. One thing. So nobody's going to go out and say, i got to have that hen mallard because I got to feed my family. No, they got to have that hen mallard so they can say, well, I killed my limit. Okay. And here's me a picture with a tailgate, you know, with a, with a hen mallard and a drake mallard and a, and a gadwall and a shoveler and a teal. You know, I got my limit, you know, and some of them will put a hoodie McGanger in there thinking I got my bonus bird. I mean, <laughs> that's just, <laughs> that's just a wrong thought process. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We're, I'm, I'm the same way, and we, at least, I can't control necessarily all the members in my uh, that are partners in my farm. But uh, whoever hunts with me and my my kids are the same. Is the the hens are off limits? Uh, yeah, every once in a while you slip up and and knock one down, but it's they're definitely not uh, blindly pulling the trigger and and seeing what the dog picks up. It's a concerted effort to to lay off those things. So. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see us go back to that attitude we had back in the day when Delta Waterfowl was promoting that vo- voluntary restraint. And voluntary just see what restraint. Happens. I still got a hat pin. Yeah. I've got a hat yeah. pin with that on it. Yeah. But, I, you know, that's just. Well, here's, you know, here's the thing. Well, remember when Arkansas, it was a one hen mallard limit? Yeah. Y'all remember how far, I don't forget how far long ago that was. It was, you know, four mallards, one hen. Well, they went to two hens. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. They went to two hens, and I asked a game warden, uh, was a good friend of ours up here, I said, how come y'all went back to two hens? He said, we were finding too many hen mallards that had been stomped in the mud because we figured it would be easier to go back to two hen mallards and at least not have them wasted. And that's the reason that they went back to two hen mallards. Uh, you know, just like pintails, you know, on the point system. Gosh, that was stupid. Ten, ten, ten point pintails. I know the reason why, but I don't really want to put that out there because I might get a slander lawsuit against me. But uh, I know why they were ten points. It's it, that's another story, but, but no, do you all know anybody that needs a hen mallard to feed their family? <laughs> no. no, I don't. I don't. We had a member and his son last year. They came in one morning with four hen pintails of two of them. Well, we thought they were gadwalls. I said, well, why'd you keep shooting brown ducks? Well, we weren't sure. And I mean, 
I took I took them off to the side, and we had to come to Jesus meeting right then. I said, you know, y'all on thin ice as far as being back here next year. I said, you know, you better think before you pull the trigger. Uh, and it's like, and don't tell me it doesn't make that much difference. It does, because it's a proven scientific fact. And I've got a degree that makes me understand this. A dead hen cannot lay another egg. It's physically impossible. It won't happen. <laughs> so, you know, it's, and, and some biologists say, well, it takes, you know, it, the resource can stand it or blah, blah, blah. No, I don't care what they say. Somebody did a master study on duck uh, predation in the prairie, and they've radio-collared a red fox, and she was taking 14 hens off the nest a week to feed her kids. Fourteen. Imagine how many red foxes are up on the prairie. You know, hens are targeted by everything. I mean, not only the foxes, the skunks, the raccoons, the hawks, the owls, the eagles. uh, There's so many things trying to kill them uh, because they're vulnerable. You know, the drakes are sitting out there, you know, staged on big water while they're molting. The hen is molting on the nest which coincides with when her eggs are going to hatch at 24 days or she can fly. But, you know, while she's on the nest, most of them can't fly. They can run. But, uh, you know, something faster is going to catch them. But, I mean, uh, the, the percentage of hens that are killed, uh, not necessarily by hunters, but, you know, on a breeding ground is is uh, phenomenal. Uh, just you know, you sit there and think about it, but people think once a duck leaves Arkansas, it don't matter. I mean, you know, they'd be back or, you know, they're safe now. Well, that ain't going to happen. So, no, no. But yeah, I, I love seeing these. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say, you know, we can't, we can control in small doses. I mean, obviously Delta waterfowl makes efforts on the predators but we, we, we can control what we pull the trigger on and, and we're guaranteeing that duck will not make uh, another clutch of eggs by, uh, you know, dropping that hen. I'd rather roll the dice and let that duck make it back and have some babies and see see what happens versus guaranteeing its fate. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It, my oldest son, Patrick, he worked with Delta Waterfowl two summers while he was in college, and he was on uh, predator control projects up on the prairie in uh, North Dakota. And, I mean, it was phenomenal. You know, the, the uncontrolled predator areas were having like 2% success rate on hatches. The controlled areas were having 80, even 90% success rate. So, uh, you know, there's a lot that the average duck hunter, and I hate to put them all in one sock, but they're probably the ones that got robo-ducks and face paint. Uh, they don't realize that. Uh, it's just, uh, there's more to it than just sitting here looking north, waiting on the, uh, the migration. A lot more to it. That's a fact. That is a fact. Well, 
Well, we've had, I mean, this has been an awesome discussion uh, and we really appreciate you taking the time, but uh, we've got a, we've got a question that we ask every guest kind of wrap the, wrap the show up and, and it kind of makes you, it may come off the top of your head. It may allow you to put your thinking cap on for a second, but if uh, what we typically ask or what we, we do ask when we have the, the time allotted is if you could change one thing about modern day duck hunting, what would it be? And and I, I'm really curious to hear your answer on this one. I want to see them. I'd love to go to 40 and 4, being honest, as much as I like to duck hunt. And nobody likes to duck hunt any more than I do. A lot of people that like to duck hunt as much as I do. But I'd like to see them go back to 40 and 4 or at least get away from this liberal season. I mean, I don't care if it's 60, as long as they drop the limits down to like four ducks. And the reason... I'm saying that is it's going to take less time in the field to shoot your four ducks as to sit out there and bang away trying to get six a man and you get out and you and you and these birds get some of the pressure taken off of them pressure is what's killing duck hunting whether yeah. it's being robo ducks yeah. from from Canada to, to Florida or or whatever but it's it's not something that that uh, you know you can put a stop button on, but uh, I'd give up numbers way before I'd give up days. Okay, sixty and four, and I don't care. You know they came up with the federal framework, sixty and six, and and thirty and three, and this, that, and the other. But it, you know, that can be changed. But sixty and four would be just absolutely perfect, I think. And, and you know, it'd be four mallards or it could be three mallards. I don't care. But 60 and four would, would make a big difference on the time spent in fields or the number of ducks that get shot. And I, I think it would really just improve things all the way around. Yeah, well, that's a that's a really interesting perspective. And I'll, I'll be honest, not one that I've thought of. Um, I'm with you. Like I don't, I don't want to give up opportunity in the field because it, I do think that's very valuable. But the, that's interesting to drop the the limit to reduce pressure, and I think a a very good idea as well. But um, so thank you for that uh, a good answer, and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners out there for listening to us. Uh, find us online at standardsportsman.com or on social media at the Standard Sportsman. Uh, shoot us some messages. Let us know something you guys want to hear and. Hopefully y'all enjoy this episode with Pat, uh, get a little history on, on him and what all he's done. And Pat, thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, I, I enjoyed, you know, running my mouth with you guys. I, <laughs> I sometimes get a little verbose, I know, but I mean, it's a passion for me and, and, uh, something I don't want to see dying. I want my grandkids to, uh, to be able to enjoy it like I do. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly why we had you on because you are passionate about it, and it's it's that passion that's that's what it's going to take to keep this thing alive and and make this sport thrive again. So we appreciate it. Thank you. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors: from the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994, comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, 
and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting and Higgin Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes.